Hey everyone, I'm Mike Bonomo. Welcome to another episode of Fight the Fate. I have Robert Kraft with me. Here. And Brian Davies is here. I'm dying. And he's got a little bit of a cold, but he still managed to struggle his way into the studio. I managed to, to put this episode together. And today we are doing William Callie Jr. Insane. This, we actually, we covered part of this story in, um, I think it was the Kent State where we talked yeah. about My Lai a little bit, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. My Lai Massacre. But uh, William Kelly was Me a- Lai. Is it Me Lai? Pretty, every, everything I hear is Me Lai. Me Lai? He doesn't agree. That, that was an, that was an, that, that was, was the I don't know if it's that was correct. an affirmation. What are you but, talking yeah. about? All right, yeah. Milai, the yeah, the Milai massacre in the Kent State episode, and we kind of went through. I wrote about like an introduction of Vietnam in that episode, like the quick version of it. So I'm not going to get into like how the war actually started. And Download stuff. that episode. Get We're our numbers up. Go. We're just going to dive right into Milai. I need sponsorship money. Don't listen to him. We don't want your money. Patreon slash Brian Davies. <laughs> All right. So William Kelly Jr. was a former United States officer, uh, officer during the Vietnam War. Kelly was held responsible for murdering 22 unarmed South Vietnamese citizens during the My Lai Massacre of 1968. Now, three days after he was found guilty of murder, President Nixon decided his sentence should be switched over to house arrest. Still, Kelly wasn't happy about the whole situation, and he claimed habeas corpus. Now, Rob knows what habeas corpus is. I'm pretty sure you've claimed that before (laughs) at one time in your life. No. All right. It w- and that's like that is a writ requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention. Speaking these two words is as serious as having a court order. He must be taken into court to be heard out. One way to stop someone for calling out habeas corpus is to just throw them into solitary confinement. Luckily, someone can call it on their behalf. You can just shout this shit out at any time. Yeah, I'm, I could sit here right now and just be like, habeas corpus. Like you're throwing up gang signs or something like, hey, be, hey, be. And then they would just throw me right into solitary confinement. So I can't talk to anyone. But then my mom would call habeas corpus. She really would. And then they would have to pull me out of solitary confinement and put me right in front of a judge. Right. And then you'd have to file a writ of certiorari. What's that? I don't know. Look it up. You guys hear the legal eagles here who couldn't find your ass with both hands and you're going on with this gibberish. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue. You don't know what it is, though. That's the thing. I do know what but th- Then say it. You think the audience knows everything you're thinking? It's this not, is the classic Republican thing. Like, you guys don't re- know, but yeah. I'm not going to explain myself. It's not relevant. All right, good. It's not perfect. Then I respect it, then. If it's not relevant and you didn't want to bring it up, perfect. That's what you're supposed to do. All right, be so, a bad teacher. <laughs> even though the nation saw William as a monster... 
His early years were quite different. It's almost like he wasn't seen as a real person. He was just too ordinary to be remembered. A man burdened with blandness. So bland. No one even cared he was alive. He was so bland. That's a great title wait, for a movie. Wait a minute. The nation seen him as a monster. Um, yeah. I guess they did. But when it, it first happened. When it first happened, but even then, his, the protest of support. So oh, yeah. He got it was so an much un- support after that. And like, even then, there were, he was in, seen also or portrayed as an unjustly accused monster. He was considered the scapegoat because this thing went all the way up. And Yeah, I guess whatever side wanted to believe, they could either see him that way or, like, we'll, we'll get into it at the end. There's, like, full states that, like, flew flags at half mass mm-hmm. and stuff to show respect to him. But let's attempt to understand how a man could grow up and perform in such a heinous act. William Laws Kelly Jr. was born June 8, 1943 in Miami, Florida. Now, there's not much... I don't know much about his early life before like he joined the Army and stuff, but his father was in uh he was a navy veteran from world war ii so we get to like when he was in school he had always had shitty grades he went to palm beach junior college he dropped out after one year with four f's on the on the report card and the few people that knew him in college had one thing to say about him and that is he paid his rent regularly that's all anyone knew. Is That's that a good he, sign. Is that he paid his rent. Just blended into the background. Now, he was working a bunch of random jobs. He tried to keep himself busy. He was a bellhop, a dishwasher, a salesman, an insurance appraiser, and a train conductor. Train conductor? That is a career right there. It really is. Why would mm. he stop doing that? I feel like that's a really lonely I career. feel like that's fake. Mm. He was never a train conductor. But this is like back when you could just you could just like get a career. Like you didn't really need. Hi, I'm Will and Callie. I'd like to drive you some trains. <laughs> mm. Like I like the cut of your jib, William Callie. You're mm. the you're the man for the job. Yeah, apparently the trains weren't good enough for him. And like yeah, this is back when like racism was at its peak, and fucking like oh I see you're not white or black. You're not Mexican or black. So you're the man for the job. Yeah, something just didn't sit right with him. So he decided to try out eight weeks of basic training at Fort Bliss, Texas. Another eight weeks after that, he was spent as a clerk typist at Fort Lewis. Now, this is where it, this is where it all starts rolling into effect <sighs> right now. Because he took his armed forces qualifications test. And he scored well enough to apply to officer candidate school where he was accepted. Now, Rob, you know a little bit about uh, officer candidate school, right? Uh, no, other than part of this is you have to take what's called the ASVAB before you even enlist. And then there's this other test. Um, I, I, I saw this also. Um, there's the, like I said, there's the ASVAB to get into the military. And then there's this other test for officer candidate school. So whatever his problems, he did well enough on the ASVAB. At the time, I mean, he he enlisted. Not that I mean, there were a lot of people that enlisted in the army, but people who scored well on on the ASVAB and so forth, they tended to prefer 
if they could get into the National Guard or the Air Force or maybe the Navy, but they generally, um, those who scored well didn't uh, enlist in the Army. But here's the, the inconsistency here is that him not having much of any kind of academic achievement, but yeah, scoring well enough on those. Well, people, there are people who are good test takers, and um, so, so you could pick whatever you. Well, if you he, score well, you can pick whatever you want. You can pretty pick, much. Yeah, you can pick any MOS, and then even after that, uh, whatever your MOS, you can take this the test for officer candidate school, and he, he obviously scored well enough for that, and they were desperate enough for. There's two things besides the need for officers during war, the demand was doubled up because they wanted every officer or every branch to have combat experience. So whereas enlisted men were signed a 12-month tour of duty, 13 months Marines, the officers, especially the junior officers especially, um, they would serve six months and be rotated out and someone else could come in. So you would have, you basically, you could dramatically increase the, the number of officers uh, that had some type of combat experience. So was the Vietnam War was already going at this point, and this was, was the height. Was this was the point where we were losing too many troops? Remember, there was a big like, um, I what was the? It was called the Tet Offenses. That was January thirty first, nineteen sixty eight. Okay. And that was that caught everyone off guard. That was the height. I at that time in. And 68 was the height of troop strength. It was either 565 or 585,000 GIs in country. And then in 69, they started to unwind that and, and send people home. But this was absolutely at the height of everything, the, the fighting, the number of people over there, the bombing. So they uh, just needed men, like, to get it get Desperately, over there. yeah, because there was um, – they needed men to the point where they were – the Marines typically just took volunteers, except in World War II, they were drafted. But I, even the Marines, they, they drafted, I think, almost 15,000 people during Vietnam War. And I think they also, at one point, uh, they offered two-year enlistments, which usually it's four with two uh, in the active reserve. The military is generally a six-year commitment, but they're so desperate for bodies over there that they were doing this with officers, doing other things with yeah. enlistments just to keep people, you know, to supply manpower needs. But uh, after 26 weeks of junior officer training at Fort Benning, he graduated from the OCS with class number 51. Now, he, that's what they did. They made him like an officer right away. And Well, that's what happens when you finish those things. You, you're a second lieutenant. They brown gave boot, this man too much power right away. He wasn't ready for this power. No. Why? Because he sucks. Actually, I don't know. I, no, I, I, I went back and forth on like this guy. We're gonna. No, I tried I, to come at it from both the, sides. The argument for that is like when you give someone who's failed at a lot of shit, like a lot of power, all of a sudden, like that goes to their head. Like everyone's seen this. They're they're middle manager that gets promoted to middle manager, and all of a sudden they think they're fucking god of PetSmart. That's what he. No, his other officers said he was like power hungry and stuff. Mm -hmm. Now. He was a second lieutenant in the infantry at first, and on the other side of the world, the Vietnam War was hitting the peak like we just talked about. Knowing that he would eventually be sent there, he kept training in the Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. Schofield Barracks. Schofield Barracks. 
Now, few people enjoyed William's presence, especially his superiors. They referred to him as Lieutenant Shithead, and they used to call him Sweetheart. Isn't that normal, though? Like, doesn't many people, like, they call you Shithead? Yeah, they have wonderful terms of endearment, like, <laughs> but like, like I think turd bird. And, that didn't uh, seem like out of the ordinary. You're mispronouncing Shathid, Sergeant. Oh, fuck. Lieutenant Shathid. <laughs> Lieutenant Shathid. <laughs> How many more words am I going to mispronounce? As many as you'd like. Probably more, because there's a b- bunch of names coming up. Uh, the assign. He was the assigned leader of the first battalion of Charlie Company. They shipped off to Vietnam earlier than expected. The men under him had very strong views on on him as well. One shoulder, one soldier described him as being universally hostile, and another said he was a glory-hungry person. He is the kind of person who would have sacrificed all of us for his own personal achievement. Damn, he was sacrificing people. This dude was, I don't know. I, I don't know if he was a good guy. Well, it sounds like it's one of these things. In order to save my command, I had to destroy it. So. That, that's consistent with the whole tenor of the war itself. He would run around like acting like a maniac, yelling at people. They, people said he was incompetent. He couldn't even read a map or a compass correctly, but he was an officer. You t- yeah, um, so you're giving me flashbacks to every shitty job I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> he was not qualified for this. What if his troops got lost? How was he going to navigate them back? Couldn't even read a map. Well, that's a, I'm sure there were plenty of the men who were able to read maps and compasses. Here, How do you pass officer, ma- I'll read that How for do you, you. Pa- pass officer training school without being like, uh, geographically literate. Yeah, and, and, I don't know. <laughs> and, and infantry training. Like, land, I mean, just about everybody has to go through land nav. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why. I guess you, I don't know what the fuck I mean, they were casting not, them on. Yeah. If this didn't end badly, this would be like a zany fucking 80s movie. Yeah, I know. Just, like, bam, bam, bada, bada, do your work, soldier. <laughs> if he didn't end up murdering 22 people, like, this would be like a cute story. Mm-hmm. Well, he actually, the witnesses, I think, said that he actually personally killed over 100, but I guess... 100? Yeah, but they're just 22. Is that, It's like, I guess they That's borrowed that charge from... With. Yeah, well, I guess they were in the memory of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. I guess they only charged him with 22, but they could have charged him with 100 or more. It, this is, without the mass murder, this is the plot to Police Academy for some of our older listeners. <laughs> I don't know how, how did he get to this thing we call murder? Well, in 1969, near the Shulai base area, is that how you say that? Shulai, yeah. Shulai base area, Callie and two other officers driving in a Jeep when they passed five soldiers in another Jeep. Now, they didn't know who these guys were. They just saw them driving by. Kelly pulled the other vehicle over, and when he got out of the car, he yelled, You soldiers better square up! Uh, (laughs) Square up. Square away. Basically the same thing. You soldiers better square away! A man replied, We're soldiers, motherfucker. We're Marines! (laughs) Okay, stop there. What? This is my story. First of all, that... I mean, yeah. that he couldn't even, rec- first of all, I mean, they kind of, sometimes Marines, their, their uniforms were a little different, but they. Um, Insignia. You, you're saying they're, this they're, is fake? 
well, it just shows how stupid he is that he couldn't <laughs> recognize that they were, along with the other people, because uh, Marines always have, first of all, they, after World War II, they got rid of patches and name tags and all that type of stuff. And their uniforms, the process is called sanferizing, and they would always have the globe and anchor yeah. sanferized onto their uniform. So how they didn't recognize that. And then did that happen in 69 or 68? Was that, that was pre Mila, or was it post? No, 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 it was right before. It was right, so that, yeah. that should be 69. I guess he didn't know because they were driving and they just passed them real quick. I, okay, yeah, that, that could and, be too if it was real he, fast. And then they yelled that out before you could even, like, see close up. But everyone got out of their vehicles mm -hmm. and they got into a little scuffle until one of the Army lieutenants pulled his pistol out and fired it into the air. That's also wrong. <laughs> First of all, well, when you're in those situations, something like that happens, you identify yourself as an officer. No, and I think they did. I, mean, I maybe think later they, they yeah, did. Yeah, later they did. But that's not, you wouldn't pull your pistol out and just start shooting. Ba, 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 ba. Well, first, <laughs> before you even do, so, just leading up to that, you don't even say you sold I can it. see that. I mean, it does happen. You're I'm Robert Kraft, motherfucker. Pa, 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 pa. Dance. Dance. Now, Colonel, Tw Colonel Tweaker here went right, right out <laughs> along with uh, Sergeant Schultz here. Callie took, he actually, he got beat up a little bit, but mm -hmm. when the Marines pleaded guilty at the special courts martial, they claimed they didn't know the Army soldiers were actually officers. That's bullshit, too, because they're always wearing insignia. Not that, 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 in, in tactical situations, you're... It, your rank and your signia and all that stuff is in what's called subdued form. It's like if you're a second lieutenant, it's like a like a light kind of brown. Your your brown bars and then captain would you know it's 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 brown or it's blacked out depending on your your rank. So you have what's called subdued rank uh, on your uniforms. And people can tell who you are. The whole thing is just <laughs> so it's, I, it's consistent with all the other things that don't make sense about it. But he. Uh, I guess the Marines actually the ones only got in trouble just because they were outranked. Yeah. So that's just these are just some events that William Calley goes through on a daily basis, acting like a maniac. But just insecure egomaniac who yeah. <clears throat> wants to, you know, he's so desperate to succeed at something that here he is. He was given the power. Yeah. Now we can do whatever he wants, and we're gonna see. What this kind of power turns into, where you're going to go to My Lai, mm -hmm. located in the Quang Gai province of Vietnam, sat a small village called My Lai. This spot was believed to be a stronghold for the National Liberation Front and the Viet Cong. Yeah, the 48th Viet Cong uh, Infantry Battalion. March 1968, William Calley's Charlie Company moves into the area on a search-and-destroy mission hunting for VCs in the area. I think it's helpful to have part of the, the, the larger context here. That this yeah, was, tell me about this. Well, I, in January 31st of, of that year, which basically just a month forward this, this thing happened, was that... Uh, the year of 68 was the year of Tet, so the Tet Offensive launched on the 31st uh, of January. It's the Vietnamese New Year, and that just caught the whole world uh, by what surprise. What exactly was the Tet Offensive, though? The Tet Offensive was... <clears throat> they've been digging, was, they've been planning it for months. The trenches were already dug, like dug pretty much under American encampments and stuff, and they just fucking popped out one day, What? It was a giant, it was a huge surprise You can't even attack. call it a flank. Yeah. Because they just, were in. They just 
literally popped up out of the ground oh and God. over the walls. And it, but it had been planned, as Brian said, for a very, very long time. So and they there were had, just digging? And it was another example, too, that re- there were reports, there were warnings that something was going on. And they're like, because these people had all snoozed themselves at the top, at MACV and so forth, they were all secure that, like, no, we, we've already killed the civilian population over three times over, according to the body count. And yeah. They had just deliberately, you know, consciously chose to deny these warnings. And the North Vietnamese and General Giap and Ho and all the rest of them, they, they knew that this was probably not going to succeed militarily, but it politically, which was the way they were really fighting the war, um, they knew that this would be enough to really raise the red flags uh, in the U.S. And they were correct. Um, not only did this, the the anti-war movement gained a lot of momentum, but the Americans, uh, U.S. forces never really gained uh, momentum again after that. There were different operations, but the the whole thing, they started to walk that back. And then, you know, the political convention coming up, the election in Nixon and so forth. Um, and this actually, like, leads into, like, while that was going on, the search and destroy missions where they're, like, you, the free fire ranges, like, mm-hmm. Kill anything that moves. And he blamed it on this is how they were the soldiers were being trained. So it wasn't his fault they trained him like this. He's gonna try to uh get out of it when we get into that. Which is what we keep weak people do. They don't take accountability for their own actions. So but I forgot was because of the proximity of Tet and the way we were so caught off guard that from the top down they were coming up with operations like this attack on Pinkville where supposedly the 48th VC Infantry Battalion was, even though they were 150 miles on the other side of that province. Um, But this was all in retaliation for Tet. They were going in there, and as some said, you know, anything that moves is to be considered VC. Yeah. And, again, this is all a reaction. This is – you always you've heard me say that all you hear about is the Tet offensive. What isn't talked about is the Tet counteroffensive. When all of a sudden we're caught off guard, and then after a few days regrouped, and then all of a sudden this was just this was the most notorious of of the retaliations. Yeah. But I mean, militarily, the NBA and the VC were devastated. I mean, there. The casualties there, I mean, they might have been inflated, but they were on the receiving end of very, very serious losses, and they were really beaten back and all that. But politically, it was a disaster for the U.S. No uh, but it was calculated to, to be that way. But everything after that was retaliation. Well, what, what's crazy was as Cali arrived in My Lai, now they're like, all right, you kill all the Viet Cong in the area. But when he got there, there was nothing but women and children and older men preparing their breakfast rice they because they got there in the morning like right after the sun came up and the vietnamese were ordered to stand in groups so the soldiers could search all their huts so they i guess there was there's like a sweet spot age for Viet Cong, and none of these people yeah none of these people fit the description of anything i'm sure there was some women and stuff but this was like but all the young men i mean there's a lot of stories of like dudes having to gun down children yeah but this this like with ak's and shit this just didn't look like anything was going like they're just all the the any all the as different uh, witnesses and their testimony or statements and so forth there were no 
men of military conscript yeah. age to be found anywhere, unless I guess you go into Underville. I mean, unless a guy was minus his legs, maybe he'd, he'd be at home. But everybody else who was able-bodied was either in the Arvin, where either had been drafted in the, the South Vietnamese Army, or they were VC or NVA. If just, you can't shoot, you can take a trench, dig a, dig a foxhole. Exactly. Yeah, but they so they found a couple weapons in some of the huts, but they're just people have weapons somewhere. It's not like they had like a whole artillery going on. It's Vietnam. You need weapons. You need mm. weapons sometimes it's to Usually, fight off the tigers. The key giveaway when they're looking for things is rice because they had no refrigeration. So mm-hmm. if you come across large amounts of rice that are cooked, or then they're feeding the VC because the stuff won't it won't keep. Yeah. Once it's been cooked. And all the other, th- I mean, it's, so they had all these different, quote, methods of determining whether or not the village was VC friendly or not. But here, these folks, uh, they were, it's not even that, they, they weren't even disarmed. They didn't have arms to begin with. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so all they, the men, it's women, very, the it, it was very apparent that they were civilians. And the ma- yeah. his, Absolutely. some of Kelly's men were like giving kids candy and stuff. And he was like, no, you don't give them anything. You give them nothing. And he just started freaking out out of nowhere. And he was, people were like reporting that he was so scared of the children. Like he didn't like these little children running around. Just freaked them out. I don't know. If you're like, little kids freak me out a lot. Like I go over to my buddy's house and he's got a kid. The kid uh, little Gianni's probably like one and some change. And uh, just when he comes at me, like, too aggressively, sometimes it's kind of creepy because his, like, head's a little bigger than it should be, and he's all, he doesn't know how to move right. And if it's a little, like, a baby you're not used to coming at you, and you're a little racist, perhaps. That's ages, dude. You're a little little (laughs) failure nerd that worked his way up in the Army. He might get a little jumpy. But no, what you were saying, um, Mike, that he was... The way he was reacting that way, he took again. This was all part of his trying to please his command and so forth. Because Medina, he wanted to suck Medina's dick hard. Yeah, and he Callie took literally what was put out by Medina to you know everything that moves is VC, which had come down from Henderson and, and Barker because this yeah. was task part of Task Force Barker. And again, it's all a retaliation uh, for being caught off guard by the Tet Offensive, and they just weren't going to have that happen again. So this, I mean, military, they talk like that in, in military circles and sometimes publicly, but almost obviously always in privately about annihilating, you know, everything in the ambush zone and all this other type of stuff. But there it was taken literally because as Brian said, these people that they encountered, they, they, they'd be hard pressed to even try and appear as combatants, even if they had weapons. They were, yeah. they were so old or you had little children or, or mothers holding babies. Well, this is the order that Kelly gave to his troops. This is what the report said. Shoot anything that moves. If it's growing, cut it down. If it is a building, burn it. If it is a well, poison it. If it's alive, kill it. Pulling out his pistol, William fired it into a crowd of children. Women tried protecting their kids, but he blasted right through them too. He, uh, he, we had, we still had 45s back then, right, Rob? Oh, still, yeah, the 1911 Colt. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that'll go, that'll go through two people easy. <laughs> yes, especially people who were usually like less than five feet tall and weigh 78 pounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, all's, all's we, we're taking all this information from different soldiers who were there. 
and there's a bunch of stories of some of the victims who were like children for that our, were yeah. there. For our more conservative listeners, this is like this is the other soldiers. This isn't like we're taking some commie Vietnam like testimony. We we, we do, but like this is mostly from no, his these fellow are soldiers. American soldiers. His, the fellow actual honorable American soldiers. Yeah, so, this exactly. Brian's exactly right that this is coming from guys who were there who who were trying to take a stand. It was, wasn't. This wasn't the commentary from draft evaders wearing NBA flags back on, uh, you know, on the street in America. Yeah. Those Kent State pussies. No, Kent. So, <laughs> Sergeant, JK, RIP. Sergeant Michael Bernhardt was a soldier at the scene, and he gives an account of the event. And he says, I saw them shoot a M79, which is a grenade launcher, into a group of people who were still alive. But it was mostly done with a machine gun. They were shooting women and children just like anybody else. We met no resistance, and I only saw three captured weapons. We had no casualties. It was just like any other Vietnamese village. Old Papa Sands, women, and kids. As a matter of fact, I don't remember seeing one military-aged male in the entire place, dead or alive. You know why? Because they were fucking the Charlie. That's where the military-aged <laughs> men were. These were Charlie supporters. No, this is fucking disgusting. Yeah, so... It's pretty bad. And getting killed was a good thing compared to what some of these people had to go through mm-hmm. before they were killed. Women were raped and severely beaten. They were, they were like, gang-raped at some points, too. Some reports say... They shot all the livestock, the huts were burned down, and they would carve C's into the chests of the Vietnamese for Charlie Company. It's the big C right in the chest. Hmm. Now, mass hysteria had set in. Troops that didn't want to partake in the action found themselves acting without thinking. Some of it could be blamed on their free free fire zone training. They taught me to do this. Taking the time to drag bodies into a ditch before he dispatched them, Kelly was cold and calculated with every move. One guy said he drug like 20 bodies into a ditch first and then shot them. Sufficient. Kelly was fucked up. Who knows how long this group could have continued on. This like fighting, this massacring. There were still people left over. Like they could have kept killing people. But the bullets only stopped flying because of Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson flying above the action in his helicopter. He saw the unarmed women and children retreating from the heavy gunfire. He came in on his chopper, he landed it between them, and he threatened to open fire against his own troops. Then he started flying dozens of survivors to receive medical help. Boom, landed right in between them. And he stopped the massacre. That's pretty gangster. Just like stopping in the middle of fucking bullets flying. Uh, William Thompson. William Thompson? No, Hugh Thompson. Hugh Thompson was the man. He has an interview on... I just saw that on YouTube. Hugh Thompson has an interview. And he shared about it in 1994. We kept flying back and forth. And it didn't take very long until we started noticing a large number of bodies everywhere. Everywhere we looked, we'd see bodies. These were infants, two, three, four, five years old, women, very old men, no draft age people whatsoever. Now from this whole thing, Thompson and two members from his crew crew received the soldier's medal for his actions that day. 
Okay, we got the uh, the kill counts from this right here, which is some of them. There was 182 women, 17 pregnant women, 173 children, 56 infants. Those were some of the deaths that were there. Now, why would it take another year before anyone ever found out about the massacre? Thompson immediately told the truth about what happened. Still, it was swept under the rug. Why would something like that happen, Rob? Well, this like is... Like, he told them what happened, but they is, didn't listen to him. It's war. It's all about uh, preservation of the, the power structure and not being second-guessed. And this is just how things were done. This was after the Tet Offensive, and we weren't going to let anything stand in the way of, of defeating uh, the VC and the NBA. So just get, just forget this. Just forget about it. They didn't want, the Army didn't want it getting out. The first reports talked about how they were successful in killing 128 Viet Cong. And that was it. Just another mission gone to plan. Reporting false numbers of their success. Now, there's a very famous photograph of this whole situation. It was taken by Ronald L. Haberl. He took a, the photo showing, like, children and women dead in the road. And I, wasn't it, was it on the cover of something? or Time, and then I don't know if that same photo was on the cover of Look magazine, but it was certain, all, the, all the atrocity photos, all the famous iconic ones all made it into, uh, not, not Look, Life magazine, excuse me. Yeah. That was, and there was that stuff. There was also the thing on, it was either Time or, again, Life magazine. They, they did, One week they showed pictures of every GI that died that week or something. like. And for this particular week, I think there were 258 of them or something. But, but, yeah. but this stuff, once it, it, it hit the press, it was really bad to the point where it was the first time there were even, they, they had, I forget who the guy was, it was a very high-level ranking person actually made a statement about this because typically they wouldn't even acknowledge it are you but, talking about um a guy who like wanted them to wanted to investigate or was he sweeping it under the rug no he was just acknowledging that something occurred typically, oh, okay. typically they I, I forget you might even have it in here i didn't mean Maybe. to jump the gum the, the pr press release you know when a football player fucks up and uh, they have to make a quick statement before anything official happens. Yeah, that kind of deal. Yeah, they, the fact that they were even acknowledging that they were that they were going to be looking into something was extraordinary. As time went by, helicopter door gunner Ronald Ridenauer gathered reports about what really happened. Soldiers were coming out telling their stories, and when he was ready, he sent his proof to 30 officials in Washington, D.C., including Richard Nixon. Terrible move. You sent it to Nixon? You Played yourself. It's the worst person you could have sent this to. We're going to need to see, have this soldier see a lot of action, if you know <laughs> what I mean. Well, he, he could have sent it to Mayor Daley. That he would be a runner-up for... Still, though, 30 officials... It took this, this guy was just studying this event, and he, he gathered enough to, to get this done. Now, two investigations were launched from this, one for the massacre and the other for the potential cover-up by the Army. The inquiries led by Lieutenant General William Pierce demanded that at least 28 officers be charged in the cover-up. Only 14 were ever charged. One being William Calley Jr. This uh, General Pierce, 
was getting shit done. Out of the 14 that were charged, all of them were immediately acquitted, except for Khaled, who was charged with 22 counts of premeditated murder. He turned around and blamed it on Captain Ernest Medina. But that didn't stick either. His, they didn't even really pursue him. They call him Teflon Medina. Why? shit don't stick. Why? Shit don't stick. He was acquitted in a separate trial. No, uh, basically, I mean, I'm... Uh, I think I do believe Medina had a lot to blame. Like he shares a bit of blame, not directly for murder, but for like yeah, but it came building down, the scenario like, for murder. But yada yada yada. But like um, basically, it comes down to he, uh, Cali sucked, and everyone loved Medina. Like everyone loved Medina. I, like I'm I'm watching documentaries, and like everyone's just like so they had his back. Yeah. Again, this is like again we're talking about a time where like there's still like we still uh, we're we're in the height of civil rights, right, Rob? In '68. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. pe- people love this uh, Mexican-American gentleman, uh, Captain. Mm. Like, that's how much he's loved that. Like, it goes beyond the normal racial boundaries. Yeah. Well, he was a good officer, and he yeah. was well-liked. by his. Uh, yeah, he, this, he was an officer that the enlisted men suited them. They saluted the man first and not – they saluted his rank second. I mean, he had earned his respect. He had worked his way up. So um, he was considered a good guy and a good leader. Well, during Callie's trial, there would be soldiers that would take the stand and then just flat out deny answering questions, claiming they didn't want to incriminate themselves. Callie had a bunch of excuses for this. He said the first thing he said was that it was just an airstrike. Drones. That's why so many people were dead. Mm. Now, on the stand, Callie defended himself. I was ordered to go in there and destroy the enemy. That was my job that day. That was the mission I was given. I did not sit down and think in terms of men, women, and children. They were all classified the same. And that classification that we dealt with over there, just as the enemy. I felt then, and I still do, that I acted as I was directed. And I carried out the order that I was given and do not feel wrong in doing so. He does not feel wrong. I'm not guilty. (laughs) Now, March 1971, William was sentenced to life in prison. Around the nation, Callie was seen as the scapegoat, and the support was spreading at this time after the trial. Indiana's governor, Edgar Whitecomb, ordered all flags be flown at half-staff. I'll hold that thought. Here we look at it. This took place in March of 68, and they're just getting around to... Yeah, some closure pretty, here in March three years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, talk about bureaucratic an, another, inertia. Another I thing. I with, mean, that, that's uh, not to cut you off, but that's pretty typical. Like, you t- it takes a while to build a case to establish the evidence to establish, especially with this, where you're relying on so much witness testimony to see if the witness testimony matches up with the dates, the time, who could have been there, who could have not have been there. Yada yada. It takes a lot of time to like uh like what's his face? Uh Golden State still hasn't like he's not on trial yet. It's gonna take years to build that case. He'll probably be dead. Yeah. He'll re- he really will probably be dead before he sees his court. Well here's a uh, another thing I had a quote where because people started thinking of in terms of conspiracy theories because people were getting off or not being charged and the the quote I had it talked about how once people are out of the service, they apparently were beyond jurisdiction. No, no, it's... Um, when things expire? Not when things... When the uh, statute of limitations... Yes. Excuse me. Uh, so so, so first of all, they were. it was in another country. They were now out of the service. 
some of the people who could have been charged. So again, what Brian also said is all valid about this all taking time and so on and so forth, but that also if they, by dragging it out, other people were either separated from the service or did other things. So it was yeah. just very convenient that then you had a large number of people beyond the reach of military law. And, and do I understand correctly that as soon as you're out of the service in like a, a military court situation, you don't have the same things apply to you? I don't know, but it's consistent with the quote I read about when people started throwing around conspiracy theories, ideas that, that several people were already beyond the reach of this because it took place in another country and they were also out of the military and so forth. And then another thing with Medina, when he, when he like blamed Medina, Medina was like, yeah, I told him to like search and destroy Viet Cong. Not women and not just everyone. That's all he said. Like people it's get like, that order. I didn't tell him to kill everyone. People get that order every day and don't massacre whole villages. Yeah. So uh, this the guy who ordered the flags to be flown at half staff in his honor. Mm. He wrote Richard Nixon asking for a pardon too. So people really wanted him out of prison. You know, five thousand telegrams were sent to the White House. And a hundred to one were in support of Kelly. And there was this, this is what I thought you were talking about earlier. This Colonel Harry G. Summers, he wanted him hanged. <laughs> now, when Nixon finally implemented the house, he, remember in the beginning I said, Nixon came in and what was it, three days after he was charged? Yeah, he was in the stockade and three and a half days later. Nixon came in and gave him house arrest. Now, Callie was sent to his quarters in Fort Benning. He, he just got out of Fort Leavenworth, right? Was he in prison there? No, he... Where um, was the prison? He Isn't Leavenworth the, Leavenworth the military? Leavenworth was prison, but I, I guess he was there three no, months. No, I think, yeah, he was in Leavenworth. He would have went... He was in there for three days. That's like the military prison, correct? Yes. Yeah, so they sent him to Fort Benning, and after spending three and a half years at his home there... His claim of habeas corpus was granted by federal judge J. Robert Elliott. The claims were that the trial had been prejudiced and skewed by pre-trial publicity. Not wrong. Now, there was also subpoenas that were denied for defense witnesses and the refusal of the House of Representatives to release testimony from the Milai investigation. So, I mean... Now we're going the other way where Callie's the victim. He didn't mean to do this. February 27th, 1974, he was released. June 13th, the court reversed the ruling and arrested him again. I, I don't understand that. I don't know. How can, isn't that, my understanding, once, once, no, once you rule, you can't go they back on that rule. Like, that's a, that's a whole nother legal precedent. They that threw him right back beyond in. Beyond double jeopardy. Like, once the judge says, okay, M Mr. Davies, you've been arrested for drunk driving. Um, we're going to, we're going to go light on you. We're not going to, we see you're a good guy. You go to school and all this. We're not going to go the jail time. We'll go with the fine though. And then as I go out of the courtroom, that's been said, it's the stenographer has it. As I go out of the courtroom, he's like, uh, Mr. Davies, it's, it's your second time. We, we, we got to do jail time. That it doesn't matter. Like what he said. And you can take that up to, uh, the next level of court. Strictly it, on that. It didn't matter anyway. He was immediately released again. He got back out. And this time he was dismissed from the U.S. Army finally. And 
his all of his sentences were switched to time served already. So Kaylee was a free man. Wait, so was he getting paid this whole time since he was still in the military? Usually, when you're convicted uh, at courts martial no, and so forth, you you forfeit all paying allowances and it's a, I don't know how to, the details on that, but typically huh. everything's forfeited. Yeah, that sucks. And that was it, dude. Kaylee was a free man. Do we celebrate? Unlikely. Why uh, not? What? But it's so crazy how, like, the different point of views of this guy, where it's like he, first, some people think he's a monster. Other people think he was just taking orders, I guess. And um, then the group that I don't that believe. Thinks that, I don't believe. I'm gonna that. say it's a strong twenty eighty mix. I'm saying he's a monster. I'm saying eighty percent monster, twenty percent like who was who was the general that said nuke nuke everybody in Vietnam Korea? Oh, that was LeMay. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, yeah. He had a very progressive. His foreign policy could be summed up in one statement: nuke glass. until they glow and shoot them in the dark. But uh, this thing here, the, the monster, you had two schools. The others were he was just an outright monster and so on and so forth. Then there were others who would say, yes, he was a monster, but he still a scapegoat. He was a monster for doing what he did, yeah, but he, he followed orders. So. He was still a scapegoat. Like there are so many more people responsible. Yeah, there were other people should have been arrested too, but that's the, he... And then there were others who just thought, like, this is, you know— Imagine that. Imagine getting off on mass murder because, like, they didn't go after anybody else. Oh, my God. What a crazy audible. And he's, dude, he's free. And he got, he like led a regular life after that. He got married, had a kid. He became a gemologist. He actually married a Vietnamese woman. Did he? Yeah, one of the, no, he didn't. Yeah, he was a double veteran. Yeah, well, here's his, yeah. Yeah, and uh, until 2009, he stayed quiet. Now, speaking at the Kiwanis Club of Great Columbus, Ohio, he issued an apology for his actions in Me Lai. There's not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what happened that day in Me Lai. I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed, for their families, for the American soldiers involved in their families. I am very sorry. We, that was it for him. That's from his point of view. He said he was sorry, so... I mean, when your platform goes down to the Qantas Club... <laughs> what is that? It's like... I meant to look that up, but it's I'm like... like uh, it's like a more... It's, a, it's not necessarily... It's not Catholic, but they basically try and, like, gather men to help people, uh, men and women, to just, like, help people and help the community. Yeah, mental look. It's that a up. oh, it's AA for normal people. Oh. Like, go help. You're bored and you feel purposeless. Go help people. There you go. There's and there's so many accounts from like Vietnamese people from this too. So I wrote one down here. There, there was this guy called, how do you say this? Phantom Kong. Phantom Kong. Phantom. Let's just call him Kong. Shut the fuck. Up. All right. So Kong. There was this guy called Kong. His last name was Kong. He was 11 years old when his village got the visit from the American soldiers. On last year's 50th anniversary of the attack, he spoke out. Was the anniversary was last year, right? The 50th anniversary? Yeah, they went was over there. Right? It, was, yeah. it was live from Vietnam yeah. starring Luke the Gook. Yeah. So this is when this dude came out with his story. What happened? His family was rounded up and made to enter their hut. As American soldier tossed a frag inside, killing his mother and four siblings. 
Hours after being covered in corpses, his father and neighbors found him. Kong still can't get the image of his two-year-old sister being cut in half by the blast of the grenade. Two years ago, Kong retired as the director of the My Lai Massacre Museum. And he said that himself about his sister being cut in half. Like he wrote that he, when he came out, he said that. And there's like a whole, I was on like USA Today or something. And there was a whole list of like personal accounts from the people that were there. But uh, yes, go look that up if you want more personal accounts of what happened. But that's it for William Calley Jr., All this right, boys. maniac. What's your closing thoughts? Mike, guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Rob. Guilty. Guilty. You're a piece of shit. Well, was he a scapegoat? 100%. And he was mm. a scapegoat. He was guilty and guilty. Yeah, that, that's not... I never served, and I know enough to know that that's not how the military works. That things go through, orders get given out. Not many of those orders are written down. Well, they were given the same orders to everyone else. They too, were so. also, like, handing out just straight-up kill orders every once in a while. Even though, yeah, this did happen more than... Oh, More a lot of like times. Like a lot of other places. Oh, yeah. But he was still guilty. He's a monster, piece of shit, power-hungry, motherfucking piece of fuck. Well, it didn't help <laughs> this also the controversy of the free fire zone. Oh, yeah. That's, like, just shoot anything that moves. Yeah. The free fire is the so, Wild West. And we forgot our sponsor. Who? Today's episode is brought to you by Proxy Wars. Oh. If you don't like to fight the war yourself and you would like to fight... <laughs> Another power through another power. Try proxy war today. Communism yeah. first. Yeah, versus yeah, yeah. And also, our, also our friends at Dow and Monsanto. Our friends at Dow and Monsanto. <laughs> if, you, if you want everything in your path and you're tired of those stubborn weeds just gone, try Agent Orange. It'll get your neighbors oh, there, away. There was a lot of Agent Orange hmm? in them, them parts. If you set foot on the soil of Vietnam, you can get compensation. Holy shit. Yeah, and if you go back, listen to our Kent State Massacre to get, like, a more of a summary of Vietnam as a whole, and then listen to this, and it's just a beautiful thing. So that's it for William Kelly Jr. Thank Robert Kraft for coming in, and Brian Davies. Yep, yep, shout um, out to my Vietnams. I'm Mike Bonamo. This is Fight the Fate. Fight the Fate.